In the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Menachem, the son of Gadai, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menachem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver, that he might help him to confirm his hold on royal power. Menachem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menachem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menachem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menachem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Ariah. He put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray together. Dear God, we come and offer ourselves to you. We thank you that you pursue us. I thank you again for each of the men and women and children who are here and know that you know them in a way that only belongs to you. You know them down to the core of their bones and how they were formed. You know what their weeks were like. We come and offer ourselves to you. We're here because we want to hear from you, be encouraged, even be disciplined. So we ask you now to, to teach us through your word. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. My name's Dean Miller, and I'm on staff here. And I want you to think for a second about concerns you might have. Let's say we're all went to lunch together and we're at tables and for the first three minutes we said, hey, we're just gonna share concerns you might have. Take, take a second and think about, these are concerns I have in my life right now. Could be world issues, right? Plenty going on in the world. There's war, the economy around the world. There the horrible earthquake in Turkey and Syria and the recovery of people and victims of that. Some of you might have tests or assignments at work or applications coming up. This is the, the season for spring sport tryouts, so some of you might be carrying that anticipation or anxiety. You've got to try out this week or next week. Health, kids, family, jobs. Did anybody have a hard time coming up with a concern? Anybody here like, I'm good, man, I got nothing. What if I could promise you relief 
from that concern. If before we left today, I could do something for you, you'd have to do something for me, but I could give you relief from that concern. I could bring world peace. I could make sure you got straight A's or made the team, got you into that college, got you a new job, healed your kids. What would you be willing to do if somebody offered you relief from that concern? We are wrapping up this week and next week our epiphany series on the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. And this is really one sermon in two parts because we're gonna look at the, the bad kings this week and the good kings next week. So think about this as a, a two-part sermon that, that the hope is to arc us into Lent, actually, which begins in 10 days on Ash Wednesday. And the, the reason I wanna do that is because the theme of, of kings, again, is devotion, right? Devotion and faithfulness to God. And, and studying whether the leaders of Israel and the nation itself have been faithful or unfaithful and what the implications and consequences of that kind of devotion or lack of devotion are. And you don't have to read far into kings before you begin to run in again to bad kings. We just heard even in the gospel passage about Herod, another bad king, right? There's lots of bad kings in the book of Kings. In fact, you know, there's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There are literally zero good kings in the northern kingdom in the entire books of first and second Kings, zero. And in our passage this morning, we're almost to the end of all those bad kings in the north. We're really on the back end, almost to the very last king of Israel. Johnny last week talked about Ahab and Elisha Ahab's overthrown by a man named Jehu, and God promises to Jehu if he'll be faithful, he'll have four kings of his line on the throne. So there are four kings of Jehu. He's overthrown that last fourth king. Wouldn't you love to have been the fourth king, the great, great grandson of Jehu? You know, I'm, I'm it. I'm gonna get overthrown here. He is, because he's unfaithful. Then there's seven more kings, and again, we're at like the back end, like the sixth and seventh kings in the passage that you heard read by John. If you went a couple chapters farther to chapter 17, you get these really painful summaries about what happened because Israel at that point is, is destroyed and exiled. And there's a, a basically a litany, sort of the charges of God against Israel are laid out in chapter 17. And what you see is their kings, their leaders, the people charged with being responsible for some of God's people the people most significantly who are to be devoted to God were unfaithful to God and not devoted. Those you would most expect to be devoted in their faithfulness are the least devoted in Israel and it leads the people astray. And, and as we look at this ancient book been gifted to us to teach us, it of course begs that question, well, why? Because that same invitation and implication is given to us to God asks our devotion to him. And as you read through both books and you see what they're wrestling with, you begin to realize, ooh, I'm not that different than those kings. Because the reason their devotion wanes is because it's their concerns overtake their devotion. Those things that they're burdened by. And they begin to turn to other things to address those concerns rather than to the God who has called them his chosen people, a kingdom of priests, 
people near and dear to his heart, people he has covenanted, promised to take care of. Same sorts of promises he's made to us, if you have given your life to Jesus. And yet, in those promises are like, oh, that's great, but anyway, I got these concerns, and frankly, the volume on those is so loud, I kinda wanna look at other things that might capture my devotion. And so I wanna do this morning is focus on three of their concerns and how there are concerns, and again, as a way to build our way to looking into the good kings and what it means to pursue God during Lent. So these sermons are sort of an on-ramp to Ash Wednesday. The first thing you see as you read these texts is that the, the kings and the people lost their devotion to God in their concern for, for provision. This is a central question we all have, right? Like where does life come, human life, and then where does life, botanical life, eating? Anybody here like to eat? Food, shelter, rain, Eating is a good concern. It's not a bad concern or an evil concern. And the ancient Near East was an agricultural economy. So they had a much deeper tactile sense of just what provision meant, right? Soil and rain and tending and weeding and locusts and animals and workers. Having extra kids, more kids, meant you could maybe farm more land and have more provision. They're very aware of the complexity and symbiotic set of relationships related to food and life and provision. You and I aren't. Provision for them didn't mean, ooh, do they have what I want at Giant or Trader Joe's today? It meant, does the, does the corn stalk hopefully come through the ground and provide grain for my family so we can eat? And the deeper concern about their concern for, for provision is, is God concerned about my provision? Now, if we sat down with the people of Israel and kings, having had the year we've had and what we've studied as a church, we'd say, well, sure, let me take you back to Genesis. Remember, you belong to a God who, who made creation, and he promised life can come from that creation. And yes, we have to toil and sweat. Sure, it's hard now because of the fall and what Adam and Eve and we all did, but there is life and fruition, and this is a pretty robust set of soil that Israel's been given. You can stand on the promises he made to Noah and to Abraham and to David. I mean, that's why we're Israel at all. Don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about provision. But Israel's surrounded by other invitations. This, this could provide your provision. This could take care of you. The particular representation we see in Kings is the uh, goddess Asherah that we've seen a little bit before this Canaanite goddess that if you sacrifice to her and, and particularly find do things under trees and be a part of the cult of prostitution that she has, then you can have fertile ground. Your land will grow. You'll be able to be provided for. And Asherah's invitation, particularly these Asherah poles that they would put all over and you'd have ceremonies around, were the local invitation to find life and fertility and provision apart from God. Jehu, when he overthrows Ahab, tears down an Asherah pole that's in the center of Samaria. It's that repulsive. Tears it down and burns it. But you keep going and you'd hope that Israel or us would learn our lesson. Frankly, to read through all of Kings after a time can feel a bit boring because guess what? Disobedience repetitively is kind of boring. 
But we see again and again, Israel and Judah are being seduced by Asherah and their local friends because they're so concerned about provision, they can't trust God. And again, if you step back and ask yourself your own heart or the concern I asked you to think about at the beginning, you could probably feel some empathy. And you could probably think about the Asherah poles in your life. Maybe you have a tendency to workaholism. Maybe you're, you're tempted and you're kind of money obsessed. You just think about it all the time. Or maybe you're tempted in a few weeks to cheat on your taxes so you have more to provide. There's a particular phrase in chapter 16 and 17 where the narrator tells us Israel set up for themselves pillars and Asherah on every high hill and under every green tree. It's this act of desperation. We're going to build a pole up here and then we're going to pull under every green tree. There's a scholar who's written a book called Under Every Green Tree, unpacking sort of what that meant. And the idea with Asherah was, again, I, if I do this, I can manipulate my situation in the earth and God to provide for myself. And in that sense, the Asherah pole, this scholar writes, was sort of like a, a, an ancient Near Eastern technology. If I have this, it will bring me life. I can manipulate my surroundings apart from God to get the life and the generativity and the fertility I want. And if you, again, ask yourself some questions about yourself, you might be like, ooh, that's, that's cutting a little quick. How many of you are planning on watching the Super Bowl later today? How many of you want to at least watch the commercials? Right? The commercials are going to be great and funny. And the products, I'm not, I'm not making a moral comment on the things being sold. But I'd encourage you as you watch those to ask yourself, what sort of provision is this being sold to me? How, what are they saying to me? Do, own, drive this, and you will know what. A year ago, you could not watch more than at least one or two sets of commercials and not get some ad for crypto coin. Right? The, the easy one for me to remember is the Matt Damon one, which was all over. I enjoy Matt Damon as an actor. He was crypto coin, just the subtle one. Straight, not Bitcoin or some of the others. I'm not making a moral comment on crypto coin. But the, the, the invitation to that was if you invest in crypto, didn't matter whether you invested because of Peyton Manning or Jamie Foxx or Matt Damon, but if you invested, you're gonna have more provision. The tagline, the great tagline of Matt Damon's was, remember he goes through all these explorers, if you remember the commercial, there's, and they show like Columbus on a boat and astronauts, and the, the tagline again is, remember, fortune favors the brave. And Matt's voice lands deeply. And I thought, well, I, I, I want to be brave, Matt. <laughs> I want to I wanna do that because I, I, I'm, I'm sure it'll provide for me the way it did for Columbus. <laughs> and I guarantee you, tonight, there are zero commercials for crypto coin during the Super Bowl. Because it turns out being brave isn't the only thing you need to know about crypto coin. Or that brave can be the other side of stupid. <laughs> and there are great things. I'm sure that these are some of the commercials. I looked up some of the commercials that will be on the game tonight. I'm sure Frito-Lay's popcorners taste great. 
Uh, I like General Motors trucks, though I don't have one. Kia makes a great car. FanDuel and DraftKings will be advertising tonight. But all their invitations will be do this, and we will promise you a kind of provision you cannot get in another way. And again, that cuts a little quick, doesn't it? And should give us a little bit of empathy for what these kings failed in. Second, then, the kings in Israel lost their devotion to God in their concern for protection. If you read First and Second Kings, you'll see Israel and Judah live in near constant geopolitical and military turmoil. They're only twice in the entire set of books, hundreds of years, does it say that there's no military contact, conflict in the land. Only two times with all the kings, good and bad. Otherwise, they're fighting with each other, Israel and Judah, or there's conflict with Syria, with Edom, with Assyria, and eventually with Babylon, of course, by the time Judah is exiled. And where we are now is like 740, 730 BC, the passage you heard this morning. And at that point, Assyria is on the ascendance. You don't read about Assyria in Kings until 2 Kings 15. And then from there to the end of 2 Kings, they're mentioned 48 times. And those mentions are with terms like servitude, capture, imprisonment, tribute, and rebellion. And if you think about it, if I'm Assyria and Emily's guitar is Israel, I want to get to the ocean, which is on the other side of Emily's guitar. And the only way I can do that is to go through Israel. Israel is, is essentially a carpet for conquest. 38 times in Kings it mentions Assyria blowing over Israel to get to the ocean. So if you're a king of Israel, you'd probably be concerned legitimately about protection. In the text we have, the Assyrian king is named Pul, P-U-L, and that's actually another name for Tiglath-Pileser III. And if you read your ancient Eurasian history, you know, he's a big deal. He's sort of the LeBron James of that sort of 60-year period of Assyrian kings. He's Sujanaris, one of a kind. And at that time, people are making money. So Menahem, you heard, goes to Pool and says, please, here, I'm gonna take my other royalty, I'm gonna get my dukes and earls, and they're all gonna give me 50 coins, and I'm gonna give those to you. Please don't run me over. He says, great. But then a little later, the Israelite king, northern Israel king, says to Edom, hey, let's join up and we'll fight Assyria, which is a really dumb idea. And he goes to Judah, a king named Ahaz, who's one of the bad kings of Judah, and says, hey, why don't you help us fight Assyria? And oh, by the way, if you don't, we're gonna run you over too. Super good marketing. And Ahaz goes, oh, shoot. And he's concerned for protecting Judah. And you think, hey, don't worry. God made a promise to David in the Davidic covenant. You don't need to worry. Just offer yourself to God and ask for God's help. There's such great stories. But that, that's not what he does. He goes to Tiglath-Pileser and says, hey, I'll, I'll give you this. I'll bring your altar home. I like your altar. I'm gonna put your altar in Solomon's temple. I'm gonna move. We're gonna have two altars. We're gonna take this altar, push it over there. We're gonna have the altar to your God, Baal, and Asherah here. And I'll kind of work like a DJ both sides to see if I get good tunes with both gods to provide protection for me because I know you're gonna beg my devotion to you, but then you won't run me over. And you might look and go, come on, man, God promised the land. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, David. God protected you. You don't need to worry about protection. Be devoted to God. 
Instead, he goes and like going to the Sopranos, Tony Soprano or the Godfather. Please take care of me. We know that's terrible. It's like going to the mafia for help. That's what he's doing. I mean, God protected us, though, right? Through college or helped you land that job or brought healing to that family member or protected you from making that bad decision. Has not God cared about your provision and protection? And yet how many of us, if we were out loud about our concerns earlier, would say protection is one of our fears? It's one of the fears, I think, that's embedded in the last few years in the North American church. We feel the ground moving, and we're tempted to look for protection in other ways. We can talk about that more fully another time. But we're tempted not to look just to Yahweh. If we Yahweh plus something else, then we'll be okay. Provision, protection. And then third, the kings lost their devotion to God and their concern for their salvation. Protection and provision are really subsets of like what God will save me. Who do we turn to for saving? A few weeks ago, we looked at Jeroboam the first, and we talked about when the, when the kingdom split, 10 kings in the north and two in the south, he was worried about the devotion of his people to Jerusalem and Yahweh. So what did he do? He created a way for them to worship, to give devotion through their time, talent, and treasure, and their calendar to other gods. You remember what those were? They were gods that we had heard about before in Exodus. Two golden calves. I remember what he said to the people. Hey, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And we kind of laughed because we said, well, that's, that worked great the last time. Do it again. And it was terrible. He gave them a physical way to look to somebody other than Yahweh for salvation. And if you read through Kings, you see people tear down, the kings tear down Asherah poles when new kings come to power, but nobody ever destroys the golden calves. Bethel and Dan, north and south, a span of the country, be like in Maine and Miami, there's a calf if you want to go worship. That's the calf that brought you out of Egypt because the Canaanite neighbors worship calves and we want provision and protection and salvation. We might as well keep them in the mix. And there's this sort of syncretism, Yahweh plus. Something, I want to hedge my bets. I want to make sure I get saved just in case Yahweh doesn't work out. We see it in the New Testament. It doesn't just end and we struggle with it now, but you get Yahweh and circumcision, the cross and being a Jew, the cross and keeping the Sabbath like we used to. All these ways we want to hedge our bets apart from just Jesus and Yahweh's promises to us. And our devotion in that hedging is diluted, diluted, and diluted. And I, again, would encourage you to think a little bit about what is the thing my brain and heart go to that I think if that happened, I would get a break or a relief because that's probably the golden calf in your life. And these bad kings are a warning because, again, these temptations are embedded into us, right? They beg our devotion. But we see in God's faithfulness to us, and we see in some of the good kings, thankfully there are good kings, we do have good kings to talk about next week, that there's an alternative. It's been real interesting doing the study of these the last few weeks, and twice in this study you get a commentator who just laser sharp says, this king could not do this. 
as some of my reading. The first was in Jeroboam. When the, the, one scholar said, Jeroboam could not trust God. Boom. This week as I was reading, this German scholar, August Kunkel, is quoting Isaiah, because Ahaz was king during Isaiah's time as well. And he says, Isaiah finds fault with Ahaz at the fundamental level of his unwillingness to trust God. His various compromises of worship and of devotion are evidence of covenant failure and are manifestations of one essential problem, failure to trust God. I love that simple line, at the fundamental level of his unwillingness. It's like you had a house and the, the, the foundation was cracked. The fundamental foundation is cracked. And in a, in a real life of faith, in a real world, which is where we're living, you have concerns. Having concerns is, is a part of being human. These things that are on your mind and heart, they're real things. God says, cast your cares, cast your concerns onto him. You're not to be, you shouldn't feel bad you have them. But they do stress our devotion, right? And it's not that having the concerns is wrong again, it's actually being human. It's that the Bible and God and Jesus and the creeds and the, the church together as we gather realize that what the concerns are calling us to is to be fully human. Having concerns is human. Casting those things on God is being fully human. We've quoted a lot over the last eight months a scholar named Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar. Here's Brueggemann on Kings. The alternative to what the bad kings do is faith. To count on the reliability of Yahweh as a matter of policy. To reckon Yahweh to be a player in, and then he says, fill in the blank. You might want to write that out this week. God is a player in, and then just list that concern. Whatever that concern is. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for somebody you love. And then he finishes. I love this line. Faith here is not an assent to doctrine, nor is it an easy piety. So if someone, you're here and you're bearing a burden and a concern, this might again be a, a morning where you go back for prayer during communion because we're not gonna give you an easy just have faith and trust God. We realize it's not easy piety. It's brutally hard. But it is rather an elemental confidence in the trustworthiness of the promise and presence of God. See the contrast? Ahaz at a fundamental level couldn't trust. And what? The text is begging of you is to have an elemental confidence in God's love for you and his promises to you and the way he's taken care of you before and the way he's taken care of your brothers and sisters in here. Not because those concerns doesn't matter, but because God wants to invite you into something deeper and richer and better, more fully human, because you see what life with him is like. And in that sense, these concerns are not stresses, they're opportunities. Those things you listed in your head when I asked you to think, those are opportunities for God to break in. To show you that the Asherpoles and the Assyrians and CryptoCoin, <laughs> those are not fundamentally where life is. So as, as an arc into next week, and again, a preparation for Lent. And the reason I'm saying that is because often in Lent, for those 40 days, many of us make decisions about ways to sort of hone and focus our devotion. We think about things we might take on, things that we normally do, 
and we don't do or, or that we wanna do and things we take off, things we might normally do and don't. So it could be you stop eating X, Y, or Z or drinking X, Y, or Z. I'll talk more about that next week. But I want you to, to begin to think about, Lord, what are my concerns? So this would be a couple questions for this week as a prep for next week. What concerns do you have as we head into Lent in 10 days? You might wanna write those down this week and share them with somebody at your small group. As I think about the, those concerns, to who or what am I presently devoted to address those concerns? Might be a real concern and you don't even wanna, you don't like that I'm using the word concern. You know, you'd rather keep it a distraction or just wanna keep going leisurely. Because next week we wanna look at what ways might we take those concerns and cast them unto God in our devotion. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the good kings we'll look at who we'll see are not perfect men by any stretch, but they are men who cry to you in their need and desperation. And I bring my very lovely brothers and sisters here who are human and their concerns, the things that easily pop to our minds when we think about things we might be anxious about, depressed over, discouraged about, and we do ask that these would be opportunities for you to show us what it means to be fully human by having elemental confidence in you. Deepen our vibrant, fertile life so it isn't just piety, but it's robust and muscular and praising you for all you do for us. Bring comfort even this morning to someone who might be especially burdened that they might leave knowing you've helped them lift it, that they've caught it as you've caught it as they've cast it on you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.